Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You can never get enough volume. I can never get enough volume. <laughs> that is correct. I don't want to fool around at all. I want to jump straight into the guest we have. Sounds great. Tonight we're talking again to David Iker. David, I think you are, I would say by far, the I've gotten the most requests to have you back on of anybody. And I was thinking about today, I, I think it's been, has it been two years? Something like that? I think it's been, yeah, it's been close to two years. Um, I'm going to say it's been over two years because I was still living in Ohio at the time. Ah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and we moved We moved uh, June of last year, so it's been at least a year and a half. Wow. That's what more time flies by. You're just blowing his head yeah, up sure at does. this point. <laughs> <laughs> For those that might not have heard the episode, and I'll probably link to this on some okay. social media posts so you can hear the first one if, if you all desire uh, David come on and, and talked about uh, sexual abuse in conservative churches. And quite frankly, David, you blew my mind. Really, that was kind of the, and I tell a lot of people this, that was kind of the catalyst for me. Like I heard what you were saying about the Mennonite uh, culture. And then I started sitting and talking with, amongst some of my friends and uh, me and Miss would talk. And that's when I started mm-hmm. putting two, two and two together as far as the issues that the CHM has. And so you kind of started me down this dark, <laughs> this dark rabbit trail here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a rabbit hole. The thing that's amazing to me is um, it reminds me, I don't know if you remember the song or not, uh, by, uh, I can't remember his name now, Neil Diamond uh, sings the, the song I Am I Said. Um, I don't know if you remember that song or not, but there's a line in it. Um, Did you ever dr- hear about a frog that dreamed about being a king and, and then in it came true except for a name for the names and a few other changes. If you talk about me, the story is the same one. <laughs> and, um, that line, if, if you, if you just change the names and, and a few of the details, it's the same story. That is so absolutely true in these abuse stories. In fact, mm-hmm. I just read, I can't remember the name, but a number of years ago, there was an Iranian pastor that was in, um, he was imprisoned and his wife was an American citizen and was trying to get him free. You remember that story? I think I do. Yes. Um, I can't, I can't remember his name. Um, but his wife ended up getting him freed 
Uh, his name was Saeed, Saeed Abedini. Yep. I remember. Um, so, so his, uh, his wife, you know, met with the president, I think it was Barack Obama at the time and, uh, really went to bat to get him released. And then next thing we know, they're breaking up because of domestic abuse. Her book just came out last week, uh, or maybe two weeks ago. And I'm reading this book and it's a story I've read a thousand times. I've known people that live this story. Um, sure, it's not in Iran, and it's not, you know, all these different details, but mm -hmm. it's the same story. Somebody who looks really good, somebody who's very charismatic, somebody who's... And this guy, like, God appeared to use him. Like, he's gets arrested, and he's, like, witnessing to the cops, and they're so moved, they let him go, and all these different things are happening. Meanwhile, he's slapping his wife around. He's, oh. you know, all these other things, and... and it's one of these situations that is um, that you it just you see it again and again that same plot the same storyline. I told somebody jokingly, I think they must all go to the same conferences. Because <laughs> the, yes. the same patterns play out. It must be like some wife beaters conference all these guys go to. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because it's it makes so similar. It's so incredibly similar. Oh, it's so true. It, it does make you wonder. Is I, I've noticed that not as much across. Um, you know, maybe the general church boundaries, even though I, I do believe it's correct. I've noticed it with the, the different stories that I hear from people, even within the CHM, it's like, you just change a few details. I can pretty much tell you how the story is going to end. Yeah. I could pretty much write it out for They're just, they're so similar that it's, it's disgusting because it's, you know, you think that church leaders could maybe recognize the pattern and yeah. do something yeah, for to sure. help. But anyway, so let's, uh, let's catch up with you a little bit. So you said that uh, when we talked to you last, you were living in Ohio, so you've since yeah. moved on to greener pastures, right? Yeah, I guess so. Um, I was. I really did love my time in Ohio. Um, just a little bit of a before that. Um, in 2019, I was living in nor northeastern Ohio, close to where I graduated from college at Allegheny Wesleyan. Um, I think you guys did an episode going through the handbook. I listened to about half of it. Um, yes, we did. Some <laughs> things have changed since I graduated. Some things haven't. <laughs> oh, but, boy. Uh, <laughs> I never got a chance to finish it. I'd like to finish it because that was, that was my stomping ground. So, yeah, we were living up there. And then I got a job offer from uh, the school that I graduated from uh, to teach middle school or junior high. I taught seventh and eighth grade for two years. And those were kind of those were about two of the happiest years of my life. I had a really good time there. But um, I'd always had a dream of coming to Boston. Um, there's a school here that I'm working at, Sattler College. And it's it was a dream ever since I first heard about it. Somebody did a blog post about it, and I said, wow, that looks amazing. That looks like what I wished had existed um, when I was a teenager. Um, I didn't know anybody there. I didn't have any connection, but I wanted to end up there. And through a series of events, it included uh, some, some uh, Facebook Lives, a meme group. I made some friends in Boston, and we came out uh, 2021. We came out for Thanksgiving. And we were out shopping and happened to meet the president of the college out shopping with his family, getting ready for Thanksgiving. And we got chatting. And next, by the time we left, we had a verbal job offer. And then we got a, an actual contract about three months later and then moved in June of last year. And Sadler has been absolutely everything that I hoped it would be. Um, I am uh, incredibly passionate about what we're doing at Sadler. Um, and I feel like it's conservative Christian education done right in so many different ways. And we actually just made a, a super, a super cool announcement. Uh, we've done away with tuition 
as of next semester, the beginning of next semester, Sattler College won't be charging tuition anymore. We're going to what we call an entrustment model, which is basically our, our, the college, the staff, the, the, the organization, the institution is entrusting these students with all the, the training and the, the support, the discipleship and all these different things that are being invested in students. And the goal at the end then isn't that they have a bill, you know, this is what you owe, but more a sense of responsibility I've received. Now I want to give back. I want Mm -hmm. to give back to the community. And ideally, I also want to give back to Sattler financially if possible so that um, in the future, other students can have the same uh, opportunities that I did so that the institution can continue to exist for other people. Oh, and like so that. there's no there's no dollar amount. There's no expectation. You graduate over the next 50 years. You have to give us X number of money. Um, it's completely uh, it's completely free will. But the idea is it's not free tuition. It's entrustment. It's a um, it's tuition is being basically given to you. And then as you've received, as Jesus said, freely, you've received freely give. Um, and if, if, if we've invested in you and you see the value there, then we'd like you to invest it back both in your community as well as, as in us. So other people can have that same opportunity. And so y'all got the higher education thing figured out before the government did. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, cool. we we're having, uh, we just graduated our second class last May and we have, we have five majors. We have a business major, a biblical and religious studies, which a lot of people are going for that. Uh, we have a human biology major with multiple tracks, one of which is a um, medical school, one goes into lab research. Now, we've had, of our graduates, two graduates have gotten into medical school um, from our program, which is pretty exciting being a new school like this. Sure. Uh, one of them got into the University of Pennsylvania, which has a 1.17% acceptance rate. Um, so that's yep. that's uh, pretty great. One of our uh, another students scored on the MCAT. He scored on the 99th percentile and nice. was accepted in the Long School of Medicine in San Antonio, Texas. So Very we cool. we have a lot of great stuff happening. And so just to give you an idea of actual numbers, um, our average student is going to be paying. They we we can't offer at this point room and board you know, because that's something that's a fixed cost. Um, we're able to subsidize it. And so students are going to pay about, I think at this point, $9,800 a year for room and board. That includes a place to stay and two meals a day. And then um, they'll also have two, two, uh, two, uh, fees, rather. And that's about $250 um, for fees, uh, which includes lifetime access to Lagos, by the way. And like there's, I don't know if you're familiar with the Lagos software, but that's one thing that's included in student fees. Um, that's uh it's it's an amazing deal and then there would also be uh the cost of books which is some students buy all their books some students borrow are able to borrow and and so on we have we have access to boston public library so students are going are can expect to spend about ten thousand dollars a year uh and that includes your living expenses and everything between ten and twelve thousand dollars a year so I don't know anybody that's living in Boston for that, much less getting an education that uh, that's in my estimation is a world class education. We have some faculty members who've graduated from schools like Harvard and Yale. Uh, we had one of our one of our our academic dean is actually a graduate of Yale Law School, 
And so we've been able to attract kind of a dream team. I, I just feel incredibly blessed to be part of it. Yeah. Um, And yeah, it just feels like it's a place that is dedicated to building young people into um, adults who are going to do incredible things out in the world. Sure. That's cool. So so when did, uh, when did Sattler start? You said this is a new college. Yeah, we're the first college to get a charter in the state of Massachusetts since the 1990s. State, the state of Massachusetts is, um, you know, Boston is like the education capital of the world. Mm-hmm. And so it's really difficult to start a school here. Um, so we we had a quite a long process in, in, in even making that happen. But we started classes in 2000, I think it was 2019. I see. Well, that seems like a big no, undertaking. It would have been, it would been earlier than that. Yes. I think maybe seven. It would have been 17. 2017 was our first class. Wow. Just to decide to start a college, that's uh, that takes some guts. Yes, it uh, does. Takes yeah, yeah. This, uh, the story The story behind it is um, our founder is a man named Dr. Finney Caravilla. And he is a he was educated at Harvard. Uh, he's a Harvard um, medical student, went to Harvard Medical School. I mean, he has... He has a lot of letters behind his name. Uh, graduated from Caltech when he was like 16 years old. Mm. Uh, goes to goes to medical school and actually is a doctor for a while and gets frustrated because he's like, I'm dealing with situations that I feel like I'm throwing my life away. Here's somebody comes in, preventable disease. They're they're not eating right or they're smoking or this or that. And and, and so we help them, we work with them. We get them stabilized. They go back home. They continue the bad habits. And here we go again. Um, and so he's like really uh, kind of discouraged with the fact that he wants to do something that makes the world a better place and helping just tide people over who are married to their bad decisions. Uh, it just isn't doing it for him. So in 2008, he and a partner decide they want to start an investment firm in um, biotech. And now, if you know anything about, if you remember 2008, <laughs> there's a massive financial meltdown. Yeah, the big short, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yep. And he he starts his business just a few months before everything melts down. He said, if we'd have waited a couple a couple months, we wouldn't have got off the ground. But they were able to start working, and their their goal was, and their their slogan is, investments that make the world rejoice. We want to invest in things. We want to get good returns on 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 investments in things that are actually making the world better because you can invest in cigarettes and you make gobs of money. You can invest in pornography. You make gobs of money, but how can I invest my money in ways that are actually going to improve the world? And sure. with his knowledge of biotech, he's able to uh, basically do some angel investing and things like that and and listen to pitches from people who have new ideas that could potentially be absolutely world changing. He's uh, looking into some Alzheimer's, uh, things that can improve or slow down the, the pro- progression of Alzheimer's is something he shared with me that their company's looking into investing in. They had an agreement. Um, his, his company, if anybody's interested, is Eventide Investments. Uh, they, have a, they had an agreement with their partners at the beginning of um, when they started that they were going to cap their profits. So if you think of you know, people who are evil in, in the world, you know, there's lawyers, there's politicians, and hedge fund managers are pretty <laughs> pretty far up on it. Yeah, mm-hmm. on evil don't list, normally hear you know, of investors right? uh, voluntarily capping their profits. Yeah, saying uh, we only want so much. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, uh, so because you know their partners at the end of the year they get their profit shares, 
Uh, but whatever their company makes above and beyond that would go into the partner's pockets instead goes into a philanthropic fund that they use to do benevolent work in the world. You said this is even-tied investments? Yes, even-tied investments. I like this. And so one of the one of the things that this fund is supporting is Sattler College. And they actually signed an agreement because that's one of the things you have to do in order to be, you know, get to start a college is how do you know you're going to be here 10 years from now? And so they they promised two million dollars a year for the next 30 years um, for operating expenses for the college. And so that's the seed money that's getting salary off the ground. Wow. And then obviously, there's been needs for other money since then that's that we have to raise, but that's the baseline. So we're on a we're on this on an office building on the 17th floor of an office building in downtown Boston. Absolutely beautiful, amazing view. Um, it's a it's a great location for our students. Our students live on Commonwealth Avenue in dorms. Um, if you're familiar with Boston at all, Commonwealth Avenue is a very gorgeous neighborhood. Um, our students walk through the Boston Public Garden and the Boston Common on the way to and from school. They're about a mile from school, so it's a it's a beautiful walk every morning. Um, and these are uh, just all opportunities of somebody who says, "I want to use my gifts uh, to be able to to be able to make the world a better place. I want to invest in the world um, instead of you know just taking from the world." Um, and I've had the opportunity in the year that I've lived here to watch Dr. Pervilla's life. And knowing the financial resources that are at his fingertips and watching the life that he lives, um, I don't have that kind of discipline. <laughs> if I had the resources he has at his disposal, I might not talk about it, but there would be signs. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I'm there a redneck, and we all know what rednecks do when they get money. There, there would also be signs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's something that's been really, that's been just really beautiful to see somebody who's really really does care about the world and and is making like at this point just to give you an idea of the kind of resources that eventide is, has uh amassed at this point i believe they have two billion dollars under management at this point mm. um at least that's wow. the last thing i heard um, they're doing quite well uh, my brother has some money invested in it so he'll tell me sometimes the returns that are coming in uh he said i think two years ago it was either last year or two years ago he got 40 percent returns Holy wow. cow. So um, it's, you know, you can't do wow. that every year, but you don't have to do it every year. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. that's true. That's true. Um, before we move on to uh, what else we're going to talk about, did, what, Sattler College, is there a website or how do people find out more about yeah, Sattler? Um, it's uh, sattler.edu, S-A-T-T-L-E-R dot E-D-U. And yeah, it's an, it's an amazing opportunity. If you're looking for a, for a college, uh, especially um, you're looking for a place to, to, that has an amazing medical program. Um, our, we have, we have options. Our students have been able to do some really incredible internships. One of our students right now is the only intern in the lab he's working with. That's an undergrad. Everyone else that he's working with is, are actually graduate students and he's managed to land an internship there. Um, so part of the reason we chose to be in Boston was those, the opportunities that just surround you in a place like Boston with mm -hmm. all these businesses, opportunities to work. Um, especially in the medical field. And so, yeah, if somebody's interested in that, or uh, like I said, we have a business, we have a business program. Um, one, another thing that makes us special, I know I'm just gushing about Sattler. Um, no, go ahead. <laughs> another thing that makes us special, we're the only school in the U.S. that requires all students, whether you're a medical student, whether you're a biology student, whether you're a, 
uh, business student or obviously biblical and religious studies, we're the only school that requires all of our students to take a year of Hebrew and a year of Greek. Um, and this is the the goal of this is to develop the whole person and the ability to go back to scripture, studying the original languages and so on. And our the way that Hebrew and Greek are taught is very, very, very interesting. It's a it's like conversational. Like they'll have conversations in class. They actually in Hebrew class, each of the students has their own Hebrew name that they use in the stories that they that they tell together and, and things like that. So it becomes a way, it becomes more than just language in a book. It's something that they actually are using. I'll watch them in social media posts, like copy th- uh, t- typing things in Greek as their captions or in their comments. Like these hey, students well, are actually using it. Uh, and it's, it's pretty amazing. This is something, Miss, I can definitely appreciate this because I, when you start going down the King James only rabbit mm-hmm. hole oh, and yeah. you run across guys like Dr. James White and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and he talks about how he reads his daily devotions in Greek. Oh, yeah. And it's like, um, that seems like that'd be a pretty cool advantage to have. Yes. <laughs> I was just talking to someone um, at work about it, and they're not by any means a Christian. But he said, when I start doing research on things, he says, why do people do King James only whenever, like, that's not even the original Bible? And I told him about Natalie Edmondson and how she um, actually, if I'm not mistaken, she has a English and a Hebrew, I think it is. She has a, a joint Bible that has both, and I she's very, very knowledgeable. And then she's the only one I know that can read that. Well, that's, that's very cool, that's, David. Yes. It sounds that's like amazing. you're doing a very good work up there, and... Um... I want to post a link to this as well, and, and sure. I encourage people to go check out sattler.edu and check them out and see what's going on up there. Actually, the King James thing is a good way to segue over into another little bit of a topic. You know, David, me and you talked about this. Uh, we even hear preachers in the CHM miss talking about this as of late. You know, we get accused a lot of times, people like the three of us, those that disagree, <laughs> that somehow we're doing some, and by disagree, I mean with uh, hyper-fundamentalism, uh, super conservative like CHM or, you know, the very strict uh, section of the Mennonite culture. David, sometimes they they look at us as if we are, what, trying to destroy them or something like that? Yeah, there's there's an idea. And I think I think it comes from, I think it comes from the idea, from the problem of conflating your culture and your your convictions that you personally have, and not being able to see beyond that, and that's actually one of the it's actually one of the facets of fundamentalism that makes it what it is, is it's really difficult to see somebody else's perspective. I read the Bible, I see what it says. If you don't see what it says, then obviously you just must not love God, because mm-hmm. if you did, you were listening to Him, you'd come to the same conclusion. Never mind the fact that people have been coming to different conclusions about the Bible for the last you know, four, four to 6,000 years yes. right. that uh, different people reading the same book come to different ideas. And a thought actually hit me recently that if, if, if God really cared about everybody coming to the same conclusion, and if that was the whole point, then Jesus wouldn't have sent the Holy Ghost. He would have just stuck around. And he could he could have hung around Jerusalem, and if you had a question about what he meant, you could write him a letter. You know, he could have a new addendum that comes out every couple, every six months or something. You know, the mm-hmm. Jesus notes, and everybody could get those and read them. And then, okay, <laughs> we know what to believe about this. He clearly didn't intend that because he could have done it. 
He yes. could have stuck around and run the thing. But he chose to send the Holy Spirit to guide people. And so it seems like we're supposed part of the part of the issue is we're supposed to be struggling with it. And we're supposed to not be certain about it. And we're supposed to have some questions. It seems to me that way, because if we're not supposed to do all those things, he really seems to me to have picked a bad way to do it. And when you're the 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 all eternal, all knowing, omnipotent, um, all gracious one, uh, you know, it, it seems like you'd be able to, to accomplish what you're looking to accomplish. And so I think that when I look around and I see the different denominations and I see the different um the different people that are that are trying to serve God in different ways, I have to conclude that on some level, God wanted it to be that way. And 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 I think I think there's something that we miss. And we hear this in, in um Corinthians, Paul talks about the body and how the body isn't all one eye, or it's not all one foot, and it's all not one hand. And we hear this a lot of times, you know, within the local church. So here's somebody that's really good at hands-on stuff, and here's somebody that's good at teaching, and we need all those different people in the church, you know, so that, so that the church can function. And that's true, and that's great. But I think it's also true of denominations. If you think about a baby forming in, in the womb as an embryo, you have, you know, these stem cells, and those stem cells could be anything. But as they start dividing, they start specializing. And some of them start becoming the liver, and some of them become the kidneys, and some of them become the brain, and some of them become the you know, the nervous system and the and the blood cells and all these different things. And they all have a job in the body. Uh, my liver and kidneys don't have to be in competition, even though they filter the blood in different ways. They both have the same job. You know, my brain's not worried about filtering blood. My brain's trying to do something else. My hands, my feet, all these different parts of the body are doing their things. And they could argue and say, well, you know, the, these enzymes are important. You can't, you got to have them to live. Well, you do. But... My stomach doesn't have to provide those. My liver is. And so sometimes I think that in the greater body of Christ, the whole global church, that some parts of us are intended to be the kidneys and some of us are intended to be the, you know, the heart or, or, or various parts of the body that appear to be incompatible mm-hmm. and appear to be doing very different jobs. But the whole body of Christ throughout the world needs this. Yes. I just heard a preacher, um, actually last night, I think it was. And he said out loud what I think a lot of CHM people believe. Mm-hmm. And they just don't normally say it as plainly as this guy <laughs> did. But he was going right down the line and he was saying that if one of our, quote, young people has walked away from this CHM way, It doesn't matter if they're still even serving in a church or no matter what they tell you, they are backslidden. Yeah. And he said, you know, we we should pray for them as backsliders. It doesn't matter if they're in another church, but whatever. Mm. And Mm -hmm. David, I'm sure that there are people also from, uh, you know, Mennonite circles that have probably heard that same general thing. I know that there's different people that have talked to me, CHM, uh, ex-CHMers that have been told that. Right. And I may be asking you to reiterate some of what you already said, but what do you say to somebody that is hearing that on a regular basis? But they might be, they might be, it might not be working for them. You know, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe the whole, yeah. you know, bless God, second work of grace, uh, you know, yeah. CHM thing ain't working for them. 
but they're told mm-hmm. if they walk away, they're backslidden. What do you say to somebody like that? Well, I, I think the, the important thing is uh, we all agree that the church is not God. Right. And I, even your most hardcore conservative person would admit that the church is not God. And that means you can walk away from a specific church without walking away from God. The only way that you can't do that is if the church is God, right? Right. Yeah, very good. Yeah, true. I mean, that, that, so to me, like, that's the important thing is, I, and, I, and I want to make this abundantly clear. I, I, remember, I remember being at, a, at an organization um, that's very, that's pretty conservative Christian organization, Mennonite organization. And I was going through a, ter- a time period where I was, I was very angry about some of the things that I saw, some of the abuses I saw, some of the horrible things that are going on, you know, behind the scenes. But I looked around at this group of 200 young people, and I thought to myself, I don't want to burn this down. Like, where's all these young people going to go? This is their home. This is their church. This is where their community is. This is where they're finding all these different things. Now, I don't want to burn that down. I have no interest in burning conservative holiness down. I have no interest in burning conservative Anabaptist down or, or whoever it is. I don't burn it down. As long as whatever parts of it are doing God's work, I want those parts to go on. Now, if there's things that are sheltering abusively, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Uh, if you're sheltering those things, you know, it's like Cordate and Abiram, you know, the ground opened up, swallowed them, and, and Moses said, get away from them. You know, we're, we're, we're cleaning house yeah. uh, today, but it's not the whole children of Israel. It's just that's a bad element of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say, first of all, to anybody that's listening, that you're in a church, you know, because they're a holiness church and a Baptist church, Baptist church, whatever it is. And you're looking around, and you're like, this is working for me. I don't know what you're talking about. This is fine. Well, as, as Obama said uh, about, you know, you, the health care plans, you know, if you like your plan, you can keep it. <laughs> if you like your doctor, you can keep it. Right. And I say to you, if you like your faith, you can keep it. I'd be the last person in the world to come along and tell somebody you need to throw your faith away. You need to throw your practice away. You need to get out of that church. I, and I say that as somebody who was told that. As a Mennonite kid coming to a conservative Hornets church, I was told I need to walk away from my church and everything I know because the Hornets people had the real truth. I was told this yep. multiple times by mm. multiple people. I got a lot of pressure to do that, and and I remember how it felt. And I would never want to be the person that does that to somebody else and says, you need to get out of that if it's working for you. But what you need to know is if you have question marks in your mind— and you have these things, and you're like, this isn't making sense. I'm reading the Bible, and it says this, and my preacher says that. And what am I supposed to do with it? I don't see it. Or like, if you're like me, and this is the moment, this is uh, this is the crack in the dam for me, was I was sitting at Allegheny Western College, and this preacher got up front at God and everybody, and was preaching away, and he started talking about how wicked it is to wear dark hose and how godly it is to wear light color hose. And I mm. knew he was making stuff up at that point because my whole life, the whole 18 years at my Mennonite church, I heard that dark hose were godly and the light hose were, and it couldn't both be right. Somebody's making something up. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Somebody is. You know, and the fact is I hadn't read through the whole Bible at that point, um, but I read through most of it. And I figured the only place it'd be that 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 was in the Minor Prophets, because that's the only part I hadn't got to yet. <laughs> right. And I've read the Minor Prophets since then. There's nothing about hose there either. <laughs> Imagine um, that. So they're making stuff up. It's just completely made up. And so you can be a Christian and decide there's per- certain elements of the church group that you're in that aren't working for you, that aren't clicking with you, aren't connecting. And honestly, I would rather... I would rather, and this is this is one of the things that I think is so beautiful at Sattler, I would rather and we would rather institutionally 
that somebody is not living the way we think they should live. One of the things that most of the staff and that like the founders and so on believe at Sadler, for example, is that 1 Corinthians 11 is actually talking about an actual physical covering that women wear. That this is something we believe, we believe, I believe in wearing a covering. Uh, my wife wears a covering, you know, uh, institutionally, it's not anything, it's not in our statement of faith, but if you would ask the founder, the president, a number of the staff, not everybody, but many of the staff, they would say, this is something we believe. Mm -hmm. But we don't have that as part of our rules. We don't have that as part of our standard of practice. We have we have girls that wear makeup. We have girls that wear, you know, that wear jewelry. We have girls that wear pants. We have girls that don't cover. We have girls all the above. And while there may be people on staff that would say, I'm not, I wouldn't do that personally. It wouldn't be the way I would live. The way we view it is if somebody, if, if I look at it, if I look at somebody that's doing something, let's say, you know, I got a problem with makeup. And so I say, stop wearing makeup. Why? Well, cause I'll expel you if you don't. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I won't. So what gained? Right. Did I gain anything? Did she gain anything? Did God gain anything? Because no. God sees her heart, and God knows she still wants to wear makeup. Right. Uh, she ha she hasn't changed her mind on the subject. As soon as I'm not around to point my finger at her, she's going to go back to doing it. Yeah. As soon as it it doesn't matter, you know. And you might say, "Well, makeup—that's a silly thing," because that's that's just a made-up man rule. But whatever the rule is, it doesn't matter. The same principle applies when we start forcing other people to change their behavior or live a certain way to keep us happy, it doesn't change anything. Yeah, Their mind doesn't change. Nobody gained anything. God, at the, at the, at the day of judgment, if that's a heaven or hell issue, like people like to say, you know, is this a heaven <laughs> or hell issue? Assuming that is, God's not going to be like, well, normally I would have sent you to hell, but because you were attending a college that made you do this, I guess I got to let you in. Yeah. Yep. Like, this, I don't think that's how the judgment, it wouldn't make sense if that's how the judgment day works. Boy, you're just lucky. Right. If, you, if I'd have waited to rapture the church for another two weeks until after you graduated, I guess you had to go downstairs. You can't make that somebody make believe sense. something. You can't make them believe something. And I think one thing that we can definitely pull out of the New Testament is that uh, your motives or, you know, the inside mm -hmm. is just as important. Where, like, for instance, where Jesus said, I, not only do I say that you shouldn't commit adultery, I say that if you look at somebody and you lust after them, yes, you got it in there. You yes. know? Yeah. And so just because we make somebody conform on the outside, ultimately it means nothing. Yeah. Yep. So there's there's one rule that, and this is basically um, and you know, somebody's gonna go get the handbook, see I'm telling the truth, you know. So to my knowledge, and I work with student life, so um, I'm doing my best to be as absolutely honest as possible without missing something. To my knowledge, the only rule or behavioral expectation that we have for our students uh, when they sign their, their their student commitment or the student agreement every year is that they agree to refrain from pornography and from unbiblical sexual relationships. Um, and I feel like that's like, that's if you're really going to make any yep. kind of attempt at at having a Christian community, like that feels to me like what, what it talks about in the book of Acts, you know, no more than these four things, abstaining from fornication, you know, things strangled and so on. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that pretty much anybody that's trying to live a, a godly life and have a community. I mean, we think we can all agree that if people want to follow God, they shouldn't be looking at porn and they shouldn't be having sex outside of marriage. That is correct. Yes. That's, that's yep. I, 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 
I have I have a hard time imagining many Christian people <laughs> saying, "Yeah, that's that's a bridge too far." And that's yes. where that's where the the thing we do uh, ask for students. So it's not like there's no expectations. But the thing is, those are things that actually do affect the the, the community at large. That's not just a. It's not like you making a personal choice about what you're going to wear in your wardrobe. This is that's a that's a broader thing. You know, Paul talks about um, that. You know, who who commits adultery or commits fornication sins against his own body. Like it's a. It feels to me like that's something that is. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's worth that's worth having that conversation. Sure. And I think even in that case, you know, if you had somebody that fell into porn use or whatever, it's not like oh, boom, you're out of here. It's more like okay, what's happening? What is what's going on? You know, is this something that you're that you're pursuing after? Is this something you want to find victory in? Uh, we actually have and that's that's another big part of our culture is uh, the term we use is relational discipleship. So discipleship, most people think of discipleship is following Jesus. It's this vertical idea that, you know, I it's me and Jesus. And I'm following him. But we believe that discipleship has a horizontal component that. As I'm trying to follow Jesus, I need people beside me who are helping me. Yes, I need people. So one of the one of the big elements of our culture is every student is part of what we call a journey group, and they meet at least once a week and they talk about their week. They ask each other how it's going. They share their struggles. Uh, these aren't mixed groups, so they can really get specific. You know, hey, you know, I'm a, a young man. My, you know, I am struggling. I'm. I've been struggling with loss this week. You know, um, I've I've just really been having a hard time keeping my eyes where I should, or, you know, and, and just really share about what's happening. And then other people can pray with you. There's that, there's uh, both the accountability, there's the check-in, there's other people that you, that you don't feel alone. And that's a major component of what we're trying to do in building that whole person is understanding that discipleship means walking with other people and serving God together. But it's not this this judgmental, you know, I'm checking, I'm looking at your life and you're looking at mine. I'm looking at my life and saying, what's God talking to me about? And can you help me? I need help with this. And it's building relationships and building each other up. Right. Like, because we are not islands. Like we, we actually have to all be like the body of Christ, which means we help each other and support each other. Yes, um, absolutely. So that's, yeah, I like that. I think that the the gathering of the church and this is one area uh, among many that I feel that the CHM got it wrong just from personal experience, was whenever the believers gathered, it was usually always in a formal setting. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that, David, what you're talking about there, I feel that that is, man, almost just as much a part of it. I mean, yeah, we get together to worship and all that, but that whole thing of building a community, building that fraternity of believers to where I can you know, sit with this group of guys and be like, all right, I've got some issues here and I need, um, you know, let me bounce some ideas off of you. Yeah. I think that that is that is extremely important. I mm-hmm. I think I think as just someone who's came from the conservative holiness movement, like the background of it, I think we are too focused on being perfect, and oh, yes. that we are afraid to discuss our failures and our flaws and our humanity. Because mm-hmm. if when you are supposed to be sanctified, we're not supposed to be tempted anymore, and we're not supposed to have this mm-hmm. struggle and Rudest that struggle. and all that where you right. don't. Exactly. And yes. so when we are constantly chasing perfection, which the Bible does say, be holy as, as Jesus or God is holy, but we are still human, and we're still going to have struggles. And I mm-hmm. think when we are taught and almost 
brainwashed into thinking that uh, we're not, you're not going to be tempted anymore. When you see a good looking yeah. person go walking down the road, like, yes. you know, you're not going to have that anymore. And I think that conservative holiness movement just completely just takes that and runs with it to the point that yeah. if you are struggling, then you're, you're the bad person. Like I, I can't relate to that. Right. I think one of the key things that you said right there is chasing perfection, right? which I think we are supposed mm-hmm. to do, but that also alludes to you haven't caught it yet. Right. You're supposed to yeah. chase it. Whereas the CHM takes the approach of we've caught it now. Don't yes. lose it. Right. And then, and then, it, you you add to that this whole redefinition that happens. So now, well, what I did, what I did wasn't sin. Like you know, because <laughs> yes. when you sanctify, you don't sin. So clearly, whatever I did must not have been sin, because then that would mean I wasn't sanctified. And I you know, and I right. had this experience. Oh man! And all of this happens, in, and it actually, the thing it's supposed to be doing, which is pushing people toward holiness and toward holiness of life, actually living it out ends up being a hindrance because people can't be honest about where they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. People can't be honest about what, you know, what's happening. And like the, the concept of a second work race is not, um, and I know holiness people will, will, don't like to hear this. Um, <clears throat> but my friend, Matthew Milioni here, um, like he promotes a second work race. He's like, I believe it is what the Bible teaches, you know, and he talks about it, this idea that it's an empowerment for service, that there's something that happens post-conversion where the Holy Spirit comes and and empowers you for service. He's like, you know, and every, he's he's like, I know multiple people that this is something that's happened. He says, happened to me. It was it was an experience where something changed. There was a power there that wasn't there before, and he describes it. But it's not described in the sense of you know sinless perfection or um, and see, I I hate to have this idea because you know we live in a world that that doesn't by and large, take the idea of living holy seriously the yes. way that the, the way that we should. And so there's this whole, well, we just all sin, you know, we just all doing bad yep. bad things all the time. That's just what we can expect. And I think God's God's offered us more than that. And so I, I don't want to fall down that rabbit hole into we're just all mucking around in the sin half the time. Yes. You know, we're right. we're sinning saints and all these things. I don't agree with that, but we also can't fall into the other ditch where we just can't admit to where we have any failings. We can't admit we have a problem. We can't admit. Um, Absolutely. You know, and there's a, there's a group of us that at, at Sattler, a, a group of students and me that we actually meet weekly for communion. And part of our communion service, we is us going around and sharing what happened last week. What are we struggling with? And then we have, we have collective confession. Um, you know, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by the things we've done and the things we haven't done. We've not loved our neighbors ourselves. We've not loved our, we've not loved you with our whole heart. And I don't think anybody, if they're being honest, can honestly say that as you think back over the last week, that every single moment you've loved your neighbor as yourself. I, I don't think I don't think anybody's living at that level of perfection. Yep, that's uh, true. And so we may not. So it might not be egregious. Maybe I didn't get drunk. Maybe I didn't look at you know, pornography, maybe I didn't go rob a liquor store or whatever, but did I love my neighbor as myself? And in and, and in both what I did and, and and also what I neglected to do. You know, Paul Paul talks or James talks about that. Uh whatever, whatever when we know to do good and we don't do it, that that's sin, you know. Yes. What am I where have I neglected? Have I neglected my family? Have I neglected God? Have I neglected and that weekly reminder 
of of the need for growth i don't think has to be um has to be in contrast to this idea that we're sanctified and that 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 our hearts are turned toward god and that we're living a life that that's holy those two things those two things don't have to be in contrast with each other right very true now you spent some time in both camps because you alluded that you went to uh, AWC, and then you were raised. Uh, what's the what? Do, what did you all call? Is it Mennonite or conservative Anabaptist? Um, we would have called ourselves. We would have called ourselves Mennonite. Although depends on what Mennonites you ask. They say we weren't Mennonite. the The technical term is beachy. We were we were beachy or beachy Amish. Okay. Um, but then after graduating from college, I went to an actual Mennonite church, and there is a there is a big difference between. There's really, really big difference between the two cultures. I see. So when, obviously, when you were at AWC, you were around the the second work of grace being taught. Did mm-hmm. uh, did the y'all's Mennonite church? Did you guys have something similar to that? Yeah, that's not something that that was a new idea. And the, one thing that got really frustrating to me about it coming into contact with this idea was. And I'm sure you growing up in this know this. You talk to a dozen holiness people about what site work grace actually is. You can have a dozen different ideas. Oh, they're yes. all sure that, that their idea is right. You know, and some are like, you know, if you get sanctified, then this changes. And other people are like, no, no, uh, if you're doing that, then you're not even you're not even saved. You get saved before you even think about getting sanctified, mm-hmm. you know, and then then what what sanctification does and how it works, and what it looks like. And like it felt to me. In retrospect, like everybody has to believe in this thing because we can't be holiness without believing in this thing. So we have to believe in it. But then everybody's kind of defining it the way they want to define it so that it matches what they'd like to do. And then I look. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill at people's lives and i'm like you don't live any different than me you don't live any different than the people i know you're doing the same thing i see i see sanctified people getting divorced like what's that about <laughs> right like that doesn't make any sense to me yes i'll get that at all like um and and so then it just it, it felt to me like it just becomes it, it, it was a, a thing that has to be believed so that we can check this this box, this theological box, but didn't actually, in most people, truly make a difference in their trajectory. And so that, that's where, uh, I guess that's where my, kind of my frustration with that that whole approach. And that's where I think the problem comes from building a whole movement of people around a, an individual idea like that. Because then what happens is, Either you have that or you don't, and you can't go around checking, is this person really living up to, okay, they can't count. You can't kick people out who don't quite measure up to it, and so you have to start figuring out how to make it okay. Like, you have this cognitive dissonance. We teach this thing, but people are living this way, so we have to somehow make these both true at the same time, and I think it makes people crazy. Yeah, and you you mentioned about them building a whole movement around one certain thing like that, and that's exactly what they've done. I mean, even 
I think the slogan for IHC is like spreading scriptural holiness or something like that. Like that. And whenever you see CHM use the term holiness, that's exactly what they're talking about is the second work of grace. I mean, you could just mm-hmm. um, mark it down. But it, it, And does this then play into the reason like whenever, like we mentioned earlier, you see in all these cases of abuse and stuff that gets covered up, does that kind of in some way empower the cover-up because that doesn't look right, especially if it's one of our, you know, tried and true, quote, men of God? Yeah. Does that kind of uh, lead them into, hey, keep this quiet because it doesn't fit yeah, the I, I agenda? Really think, I, I really think it does for, for a couple reasons. Number one, you're already used to reinterpreting things. So here's a pastor that, you know, whatever, he's, he's counseling, you know, a teenage girl, and he takes her across state lines to a hotel room to do counseling. Uh, that, that didn't happen in the conservative Hornets movement, as far as I know, but it did happen in, a, in an independent fundamental Baptist church. Uh, and when you're used to this idea of reinterpreting uh, that, that, then you hear about it, and you're like, well, yeah, it's not really something, sure, that was bad, but like, what are you going to do? Especially when that preacher has been preaching all down the line of all the things he's saying, all the right things. He's promoting all the right ideas. He's in, in line with all these things. And you look at his life, you're like, yeah, because what we've done is we've made the faith. And this is actually, um, I don't know if you saw my Facebook post or not, but I had an epiphany. Just last week, um, I'm on my way to work. Um, I'm listening to to the song. It's actually you may know the song, uh, "Windows of My Soul" through the windows of my soul. Yes, um, I it's it's like the song's kind of funny to me because I don't know what that means. How does Jesus go back and forth through your windows? Like <laughs> that that just doesn't make sense. Okay, why can't he use a door like a normal person? <laughs> uh, but um, so so like that line was weird to me. But I'm listening to it. And, um, I'm sitting on the train and all of a sudden I just, I'm sitting on the train, just crying. Um, and the, the, the line that stood out to me and just moves me to the core of my soul is the line in that song. He was rejected and abused, but that cornerstone has not been moved. And I'm, I'm riding along, going to work and I'm listening to these words and I'm thinking about this. And I suddenly see in a flash what I've missed. And what so many of us miss all the time is that we think our faith is based on this group of ideas. We think this faith is based on a book and how we understand the book and having the right ideas and believe in the right things and all this. And that's not the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Yes. And that person of Jesus Christ and this idea that 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 the song depicts. I mean, I, I, Isaiah fifty three. He talks about he was rejected. And he was, uh, we didn't esteem him. Um, he's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Like Jesus Christ, this person that was, that was despised. And, and in spite of all this, he knows what it's like to lift up his tear-streaked, blood-stained face and, and, and cry out to God, why have you forsaken me? And yet in the middle of that, this cornerstone isn't moved. Yes. He's somebody you can count on. He's somebody you can depend on. And all of a sudden, I realized part of my struggle in my faith, and I think part of what's happens in the Holiness Movement, the Conservative Baptist Movement, wherever it is, when we start getting our focus on these ideas, we got to believe these right things. We got to have these right opinions. We have to, 
and we we get away from the fact that it's not a what, it's a who. Uh-huh. And that's the cornerstone. Other foundation can no man lay, but that's laid. And I don't say that to say, well, just throw your Bible away and listen to Jesus, whatever that means. Like that Bible is a record. These things are records. These are ideas. But it's so easy to get moved away from him to all these other ideas that we have. Yes. And then as a result, it's easy for us to look and say, hey, um, he's okay because he believes the right things. He's okay because he says the right things. She's okay because she wears the right clothes or whatever it is. And we get away from the fact, what is it based on? Is it based on her clothes? Is it based on her theology books? Based on any of that? Or is it based on the person of Jesus Christ and what he said? What if Jesus actually meant the stuff he said? What if we actually, what if we're actually supposed to live that way? And then we can look and we can say, is that the kind of thing Jesus would do? Because I can't imagine Jesus getting in a car and taking a teenage girl across state lines to get a hotel room. That's not a Jesus thing. Not to at do. all. You know, I can't imagine Jesus using his position in the church. To pad his own pocket. I can't imagine Jesus. And suddenly we can start seeing how would Jesus relate? What would Jesus do? And then we start realizing that you can be a serious Christian. You can be a conservative Christian without being a jerk. And it's like a shocking concept. A lot of people, a lot of people are shocked by that concept. <laughs> yes. That doesn't compete you know, like, with wow, a lot of people. You know? Yes. Um, well, actually being a jerk is the most loving thing to do, you know, and you've probably seen this meme on Facebook or these comments, you know, if your neighbor's house was on fire and you knew they were in there sleeping, you'd run and bang on the door, wake them up. You wouldn't worry about it. But yeah, it's kind of true. Like I get that. So, you know, the most loving thing to do is, is tell people, tell people they're going to hell. That's just the most loving thing you can do. I'm like, no, actually not. And I'll tell you why, for a couple reasons. If I was walking down the street and a guy approached me and said, hey, do you know that Zaphod Beetlebrox, the god of the northern hemisphere, is angry at you and wants to set you on fire unless you wear a little purple hat? I'd be like, leave me alone. He's like, no, this is loving. I'm telling you this. Zaphod <laughs> Beetlebrox hates you. Put on a purple hat. I'm like, get away from me, you freak. Why, why, why would, I'm not going to do that. Like, part of being loving is also understanding where things are at. Let's suppose that somehow, suppose that somehow I knew something about your marriage that, um, that, that, that you really should hear. So the loving thing would be for me to tell you. Well, maybe, but if I don't have a relationship, if I just happen to hear this through the grapevine, and now I'm going to come in guns blazing and tell you what I think about you and what's going on in your personal life, you're like, where do you get off, buddy? You don't know me. right? You don't know what's going on. You don't have the relationship there. Love is partly about having a relationship. I mean, think about something as basic as somebody having bad breath. Like, you got to have a pretty good relationship telling that, right? Yeah, yeah, that's like, I mean, sure, they're probably breathing on everybody, and everybody's like, dude, what in the world? He needs to brush teeth. <laughs> but the loving thing isn't to be like, hey, you know what? Your breath stinks. That's a loving thing, too. So, why do you think it's a loving thing to tell people they're going to burn forever, never, 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 never? And why should they trust you? Why do they have any kind of relationship? And when you add that, as one of my Facebook friends says, um, and she's uh, she grew up Amish, and she said her uh, her she uh, she doesn't use the word mom because the woman that bore her did not act like a mother. Sure, uh, I don't remember what term she uses, but she's like, you pray that I don't go to hell because I left your church and I left your religion and I left your faith and I left all this, and now you're scared I'm going to hell. And she's, like, I don't believe it. 
because you didn't care about the hell I lived in when I lived right under your roof. When my brothers were taking the doors off the hinges so they'd come in my bedroom and rape me when I was a teenage girl, you didn't do anything about it to stop them. You didn't do anything about the hell I was living in right under your roof, but you care about some future hell that you're worried I'm going to? I don't believe you. And I think this is true about a lot of people in a lot of places. Like, why, why would I believe, why would I believe as a young person that's struggling with whatever it is? Maybe I'm being, maybe I'm just being nitpicked by everybody in the church and I'm trying to make a go of it and I just can't make a go of it. A lot of young people, especially that come in from the outside and they're trying to make a go of it and they don't know where to start. That happens. I know people like that. I have family members have gone through that kind of thing. And they're like, we, we look around and we supposedly care about the hell people are going to. We don't care about the hell they're living in right now. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Why should why should a guy that I'm walking past on the street that comes up to me like a guy did a couple weeks ago and he said, hey, you know what? I'm hungry. I'm like, let's, go, let's go get something to eat. Because I tell you what, I don't. I hope that in my whole life, and I'm not saying this to exalt myself, oh, what a great philanthropist I am. It was it was breakfast. It was a it was a breakfast roll or something. Sure. But I'll tell you what, if I was ever so desperate that I had to walk up with straight to strangers on the street to get something in my stomach, I hope that there'd be somebody out there who have compassion on me. So I'm gonna be that person. And if I don't care about the burning that's happening in his stomach because he's hungry, why should he think I care about the burning that he's headed to if he don't get right with God? Man, you're making me think, David. Wow. Doesn't that kind of, and I know it's a cliche, but it seems like it really fits with, you know, people, uh, how is people don't know, they don't care how much you know until they, till you know, they know how much you care or yeah, something like absolutely. that. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, it's not like if in all honesty, if you really claim to be caring about them, you really care about them. What's, what's the approach? Like this whole idea that their house is on fire and whatever, because the fact of the matter is this. If the house was really on fire, they would be able to look around and see it. Yes. Like you're making them aware of something. They can look around and see. At the, it, when you tell somebody you're going to hell, they just have to take your word for it. Yep. There's no proof. Like there's no, you know, but but what what I look at, and, and this is something I've thought about a lot when it comes to the judgment of God. Um, and I do, I do believe in a final judgment. I believe there's a judgment that comes against the ungodly. Me too. But I, I look at the story of the rich man Lazarus. And the rich man is there. It says he was in hell. He was in torment. He lifts up his eyes and he, and he begs for the drop of water on his tongue. And what you see in that story is a man who's still not sorry. There's not a word of Lazarus. You know what? I wish I'd do something different. All he's saying is, I'm on fire and it sucks. Yep. That's true. I want to drop a water on my tongue. And there's a lot of people in our churches, in our communities that are on fire right now, but they're not wanting to change. They're not wanting to make a difference. They're not drawing the connection and saying, oh, the choices that I've made and the things that I've done are what got me here. And the problem is you've got some people that are there and they know they're there and they don't know how to get out because we don't have discipleship. We don't have somebody come alongside saying, hey, I can guide you out of this. I can walk with you. I care about you. I love you. Oh, really? Like, how do I know that? Well, because I'm telling you going to hell. No, that's not doing it. Like this, this, it's it's completely backward. And people want to complain and say, well, that's the social gospel, you know, it's just the loaves and fishes and all these things. And maybe, maybe there there might be some people, you know, there might be some people. There's, there's people, Jesus even told them that. He said, You guys don't want you guys are following me because you because you're hungry again. Like Jesus knew it was happening. Jesus knew he was doing it. 
But I don't get the idea he regretted feeding the people because the people were hungry. They needed fed. And so we don't we don't have to be a jerk to be a, to be a, a conservative Christian who really cares about people and wants to proclaim the gospel because we can proclaim that good news. Sure. That Jesus is king and there's a kingdom that you can enter into. It's an invitation into something. Absolutely. I think that this is probably some of the reasons I have issue with like the street preaching model. I'm not saying it's mm-hmm. never worked. It, it probably, Maybe it has. Yeah. I don't know. But you've got some guy standing on the corner screaming about, I mean, it depends on who he is. He might be screaming about everything from homosexuals to, to whatever, you know, how they do. Yeah. Or just flat out telling a whole city that they're, they're going to burn in, in hell. <sighs> just like what you're saying, why should I care what he's got yeah. to say? He looks like a crazy man. Yeah. You know, and there's nothing there to draw. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, if if I'm walking by him and I don't have any knowledge whatsoever of Christianity or any of that, there's nothing that he's saying that I'm going to be like, let me stop and listen to this guy. Yeah. And, and what's, what's really, and I'm going to, I'm going to go here now. Um, This wasn't, this wasn't in my list of things, but it's, it's been on my mind a lot lately. So I'm going to go here. Um, and you bleep this out later, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Go for Um, it. I'm, I'm appalled right now as I watch the Christian response to what's happening in Israel. Because, and and there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, because I live in a city, um, there's a, just down the street from my, from where I work, there's a place called Padima Pizza. Um, they, it's a, it's a Palestinian guy and it has some of the best calzones you ever had. Um, come visit me sometime. I'll take you down there. And I, and <laughs> like, I gotten to know this guy just a little bit, gotten to be just a, just kind of a, a passing relationship with him. I went down the day after the Hamas attacks to get lunch there and they were closed. He said, we're closed. They had a sign on the door. We'll close. Hopefully be back soon. Um, that was, a uh, and, and that what happened from Harvard was terrible. Basically, I don't know if you saw that in the news or not. A group of a group of student organizations from Harvard basically said, you know, Israel, this is this is all Israel's fault. Israel brought it on themselves. I think I did see something. Yes, every, everybody was mad about that. It was really terrible. But there's a couple things going on that really bother me. First of all, um, I, I and I want to be clear about this. Um, what Hamas did, and it, it's absolutely terrible. They're holding hostages. They murdered families. They murdered kids. They did all those things. Anybody who says that that was okay to do or that was justified, that was the right thing to do, uh, that's that's wrong on them. Sure. A thousand times over wrong on them. Yes. But when you realize that Gaza, the population of Gaza, 50% of the people in Gaza are under the age of 18. 50%? 50%. That's the, that's the statistic I read. Hmm. 50% of the kids, uh, the people in Gaza are children. And you know that not everybody in Gaza is, is wanting to blow up people and kill people. Some of them just want to feed their families. Yes. Some of them are dads like you and me. And I, I saw a picture just the other day, this, this Palestinian man holding his little boy, uh, looked to be about Pascal's age, that was killed in his, by an Israeli bomb. And people are like, yeah, you know, get him. It's a Hamas. It serves him right, whatever. Now, if I didn't know Jesus and the hospital that my little boy was in got bombed and blown up, what do I have to live for? Nothing. But to kill as many of you suckers as absolutely possible yes. before I go down. Yes. And and 
this idea that, well, it, whatever Israel does is now justified, whatever Israel does is now okay, because Hamas did this terrible thing, when the fact is, Israel and, and, and the Palestinians have been doing terrible things to each other for a really long time. And when you have what, and I'm going to say it, when you have what is essentially a ghetto on the edge of Israel, you can't get out of Gaza. Like, if you want to leave, you can't leave, or it's very hard to leave. There's the Egyptian border. Like, 50 people get across the Egyptian border every year. So I'm not, only I'm not really, um, uh, I don't know as much about that area as I should. So they can't get across the Egyptian border is what you're saying. And right. then are they it's, also locked in on the Israeli side? Yeah, and they, because of because of security reasons, you have to get you have to get uh, you have to apply, you know, whatever. And so, for instance, if you have a preemie, it's almost impossible to get medical care for a preemie. Oh wow! Like you apply, and it might be six months until you can get until you can get a a, a pass. Well, what your kid's just going to hang in there for six months when he weighs three pounds? So here you're a dad, and you file the paperwork to get across because you want to get your little boy or your little girl medical help because you can't get it in Gaza, and your kid dies because bureaucracy and security reasons. I'll give you security reasons. I'll give you a reason to have security. You know what the human response is going to be, and I'm not justifying. I'm not saying that that's the right response. Right. But if you don't have the gospel and, and, and the teaching of Jesus to love your enemies and do good to those that hate you, pray for those that persecute you, mistreat you, what else are you going to do? What's the natural human response going to be? I'm going to do Absolutely. to you what you've done to me. And and when we have Christians that are cheering on this violence that Israel's escalating, because the fact of the matter is, look at if you look at the Palestinians, you look at Israel, Israel's no longer David and the Palestinians are Goliath. The thing is switched. Yeah, that's like, uh, fair to say. The, 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 the Palestinians in Gaza and other places, and I don't know what the answer is. They claim they've tried to make peace, and there's very and obviously there's powerful people who it's not in their interest to make peace. But you know what? People, most people are just people like you and me. And I think of all people who should be able to see that, Jesus people should be able to see that. And when you have people because of their eschatology, because of whatever, that, well, you that. know. Yes. Israel, you know, and all this, and this is going to be the great thing, and Israel's God's people, and, and all this. Well, the Jews can be God's people without the state of Israel being God's people. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it, just because the Jews are God's people doesn't mean everything Israel does is okay. Mm -hmm. right. I mean, the Jews were God's people back in the Bible times, yep. and not yep. everything the nation of Israel did was okay. Yep. I mean, surely how much more is that today? And, it, and it, it's so absolutely heartbreaking to me and the problem is i don't know if you saw it but there was actually a case here in chicago where this this man went over to his i think he was a landlord and he had a tenant that was palestinian and went and stabbed the mom and her kid to death because they're they're evil they're palestinians yep. so they have to go like what did that kid do that kid didn't do anything didn't do nothing. the most horrifying idea in the world that exists to me is that there's people out there that want to kill me and want to kill you Yep. because of what people that look like us or are part of our country have done to them. Yes, absolutely. But when we give our voice in support to people doing the same thing, we're no better than those terrorists that want to kill mm -hmm. us. Like, hey, I'm going to vote to go bomb them because they have it coming. You know what? Maybe if we left them alone, they'd leave us alone. That's uh, that's a very reasonable 
point to make. And, I, and I'm glad you brought this up, David, because this is something that I've been, I think my views on this have been evolving over the past little while. And of course, it's been thrust into the forefront of all of our thinking because of the news lately. But I have noticed that the John Haggies of the world, the, you know, name whatever, evangelical uh, mm-hmm. church leader, they do tend to give Israel just a pretty much a blank check to do whatever they want mm. because they are, you know, uh, quote, God's chosen people. And, and again, to reiterate what you're saying, not backing Hamas at all. It's, it's absolutely horrendous, the stuff. That, but two wrongs don't make a right. So I'm sitting and, you know, I was always raised hardcore Republican, you know, and I, my views have strayed from that uh, to a certain extent of, uh, and so this is one of those things where I sit and, you know, every year it was like, okay, what do you think about Israel? And then, but when I hear things like what you tell me and the stuff you see, it's like, no, wait a minute. I don't, something doesn't quite add up here, guys. And I don't, and back to what you're saying about loving people and, and treating them as Christ would, when you have, I mean, there's some, again, the eschatology thing is plays so much into people's views on Israel and they're pretty much cheering it on Hey, let's get it mm-hmm. done. You know, everybody get right. rounded up here and get that trumpet blowed. And yes, it's like, you know, I, I, I think that the three of us here, you know, he's born in the United States. And we, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the luck of the draw, if there is such a thing with that, hey, we won the lottery of life just by where we yeah. are. Right. And there's a poor sap right now that lost at that lottery and his mm-hmm. ties are in Gaza, like, like yeah. you were saying. And we need to care for that individual as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And what's part of the thing that, that and I didn't even realize this, um, there's a couple of things I didn't realize, but there is a lot of Palestinian Christians. Yes. I see. Like, like this is something a lot of people don't realize. Um, I don't. But Brother Andrew, God's smuggler, actually did some work with Palestinian Christians. I mean, it's not the majority, obviously, sure, but sure. Um, there's a lot of Palestinian Christians. And so to watch, to watch, um, Christian people here side with the nation of Israel, who is not Christian, against mm-hmm. Palestinians who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, it just like it just blows my mind. Like how 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 is this how is this okay in any way? And when you realize, like the um the the a lot of the Palestinians who were in Gaza, like their land was taken from them. Israel came in and they said, okay, you're going to move off this land. It's Israeli land now. You guys are going to have to find someplace else to be. And they were forcibly displaced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how you make that okay. Like, especially when you suggest in the U.S., because they're like, well, it used to be their land. I'm like, so you guys are going to vote for uh, some of our land to be given back to Native Americans? How would you feel? A bunch of Native <laughs> oh, Americans yeah. moved in and said, all right, it's our land now. You guys yes. would be cool with that, but you're cheering it on in Israel? Yes. That's hypocrisy. Yep. That's that's a very good point, David. And the thing is, it's in living memory. There are people alive today who can remember being pushed off their land. Mm-hmm. That's true, because what, was it 47 or 48? Yeah, it's 48. Yeah. Maybe like, that long ago. No wonder yep. they're mad. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and in one story that Brother Andrew tells, this guy had uh, this. He was Palestinian. He had a farm. Uh, I think it was a. It was a. I think it was olives, if I remember correctly. And you have to plant olives really a special way, and you have to um, basically you have to tend them or whatever. It takes like seven years before they even bear fruit. And he was like in year six, in forty eight, when they came and they said, "Hey, 
And they basically told him, you got to leave. This is, this is a Jewish farm now. And, and you're, you're, you're a nobody. And he goes to the farmer and says, Hey, you probably don't know anything about raising olives, but I've raised olives my whole life. And this guy goes to work as a farmhand on the farm that used to be his farm. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What am I supposed to say? Yay. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it, it, these these things, and I don't know. The thing is, I don't know the answer because, like, yeah. it's hard for me to be completely sorry that the that the Jews have a, have a homeland. The Jewish people having a homeland of Israel and, and having Jerusalem and whatever, like, it's hard for me to be sorry. And I realize some of the Arab nations around have been real, whatever jack wagons about it. Yeah, right. Yeah, like yeah. right now. Right now, Egypt is saying is refusing to open the border to let the uh, Gazans exit because they're like, if we do that, then we'll no longer be able to hold this because basically if they flee, then they're going to lose the claim to the land. And then our whole grudge that we have with Israel Mm -hmm. is gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the fact is, if I get pushed off my land, somebody's like, hey, here's a place you can be. Here's a place you can build a new life. Here's land for you. It might still burn. But, like, I could get over it. And I think most people who just want to have a family and raise their kids and whatever well, could could be okay with it. Like, if, if if you know, you could be figure out a way to be fine. But when you have when you have the rest of the world, the other countries around, the United States, Russia, whoever, that are goading this on because of, like, whatever, their eschatological views, when the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, are so plain, to me, that's the core of the whole teachings of Jesus. And what do you say? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. He said, this is how, this is how you show that your children are your father, which is in heaven. Yes. Because he's the kind of God that sends rain in the just and the unjust. He's the kind of God that that does good to both the evil and the good. He sends the sun to shine on the evil and the good, rain in the just and the unjust. Um, all of these things, if you want to be like your dad, then you have to treat people that way too. Yes. Yes, yep. that's true. You know, and 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 once you, when you see that, it's like, how how can I possibly cheer on? Oh, yeah, they got these guys. This is great. Right. Like, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible when you murder people. And it's terrible when you murder the people who murder the people. Because, like, that's only going to lead to more slaughter. Yeah. Well, and another thing, too, is I think we're forgetting that if God wants his people, Israel, if he wants them to have that land, there is nothing that anybody can do to stop them. Mm-hmm. And it, I know different people are always trying to say, you know, oh, you know, well, they, they are taking their land back. You know, this is absolutely terrible. And I'm kind of like, I'm sorry. If God wants them to have it, they're going to have it no matter what. So whenever that time comes, like... I, I'm not understanding why everybody is like so, so worried about it because their God is all powerful. And whenever he says it's time for them to go back to, because it's in the verse in the Bible that talks about the um, Jews, they're going back to Israel. I, yeah. There is. I, I don't. Uh, I can't remember exactly which one it is, but, but whenever it's time for that to happen, that's going to happen. Sure. But. Also, I think to David's point, we shouldn't cheer on the harming of innocence no, I to agree. make that happen. Agree. Yes. Which I think is what happens uh, oftentimes with evangelical Americans. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, I, I you would have be hard pressed to show me to to show me a way that 
Um, so let's let's look at 9-11. 9-11 was absolutely terrible. It's reprehensible. I mean, there's there's no way to make that okay. There's no way to justify it in, in all of this. I mean, I don't think that should be necessary to say, but yep. I want to make that abundantly clear. Sure. But what is so uh, what is so bad about 9-11 is the fact that those people on those planes and those people in those buildings had nothing to do with whatever was going on in the Middle East. Uh-huh. Right? So, right. like, it's okay in people's minds, you know, in most people's minds, it's okay. Like, there's soldiers, it's okay for soldiers to kill other soldiers because they're trying to kill you. Great. Okay? So let's assume, I've got problems with that from a moral perspective, but let's assume ad argumentum that that's, that that's okay. Okay. So... How are you going to prosecute a war in the Middle East and make sure you only kill Hamas? <laughs> You're not going to kill anybody innocent. Mm. You're just going to kill Hamas, and that's it. You can't do it. Nobody can do that. And so now you're accepting the fact that it's okay to kill some people that we know when this bomb goes off, we know it's going to kill people that that have nothing to do with this. It happened in the Iraq war and most people don't know about it. They blew up a bunker full of civilians, killed like 450 civilians in a blast. Have you ever heard about that? I don't know if I've heard about that one or not. They tend to keep that off front page. The Amariah shelter bombing, 408 civilians. They blasted it with a, uh, basically it was a bunker buster bomb and it, it had been marked. It was like a civilian, um, uh, it's 4.30 in the morning. A bunch of civilians had gone there because the war had broken out. The first bomb blasts through 10 feet and explodes. And then um, four minutes later, a second bomb. People outside in the neighborhood said they heard screaming for those four minutes. And then after the second blast, there was no more screaming. Mm. It was almost all women and children that were in that. Oh, and that was, that, that, was an America, that was an American bombing. Most people don't know about that. There's a there's a monument there. People can go visit the monument or whatever. But it's not something that most people know about. Like it was like basically it was like a gigantic oops. Yes. Imagine now that somebody whose little boy or little girl was in that bunker and they said, Fine, you guys want to do that? I'm gonna hijack a plane. I'm gonna fly it into a building. Boom. Now, that's terrible, but it's hard for me to explain why what he does is terrible and why what they did, we could just say oops about. That's a very good point. Unless you're going to invoke that it's our side that did it, so that makes it okay. And then I'm going to ask you, are we in kindergarten or what? <laughs> because, like, well, that's one of the first lessons that we learn, right? Well, they did it. Well, that doesn't make it okay it for you to do it. Right. You don't just do it back, sure. right? Like, but, but, but suddenly when we get into geopolitics, we're all kindergartners again. Well, they did it to us, so we can do it to them. And the only way out of this hell is Jesus' gospel of peace. That's why he came to die. And that's why it bothers me so much to see Christians cheering us on, because I'm like, you guys are on the wrong team, folks. <laughs> like, you are cheering for the wrong team. Any innocent blood being shed is the wrong innocent blood being shed. There's only one kind of blood that Christians should be looking to shed, and that's their own. That's them saying, I'm willing to die. Like the like the the patriarch of uh of Jerusalem that offered himself as a hostage. He said, if you guys, if he says to Hamas, if you guys will let these, these women and kids go, I'll come, I'll give myself to you as a hostage. That's Christ-like. Yes, it is. And that was, that was pretty cool to see. Yeah. Hmm. It's an uncomfortable conversation. Well, that's not right. It's kind of inconvenient 
these kind of mm-hmm. conversations, especially with the news cycle as hot as it is right now. But it's it's questions that you know we do need to ask ourselves, and the same people that will stand up all day and protest abortion, and I believe rightfully so. Yeah. So many of them will then also look the other way on the other innocent blood. Uh, yeah. In these kind of situations. Yeah. Well, well, if if we would take the amount of money that is being used to kill Arab kids with bombs and missiles, the, all the oops is, well, we didn't intend to kill them. Oh, well, that makes it okay then. Because um, we were trying to hit somebody else. Never mind the fact that, I mean, there's story after story after story of, like, oops. Uh-huh. Like, one of the darkest jokes that I've heard um, in, in recent years. Uh, do you know the difference between a terrorist training camp and a, a, and a school in Pakistan? What's that? Yeah, man, I don't know either. I just fly on the drone. <laughs> it's so t- it's true. Yeah, it's, it's true. Absolutely. And if you hit the button and you blew up a bunch of kids, like it literally, the answer is oops. We thought it was terrorists. Yes. And then everybody's like, and if you and if you raise the question that maybe that's not okay, you're anti-American and you're well, if that's what America is, then we should all be anti-American. So I'm anti, like, six things the Lord hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. And one of the things on the list is uh, hands of shit innocent blood. Yes, it is. Gay marriage didn't even make the list. <laughs> which is which is like surprising to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's not on the list, but shedding innocent blood is. Like, God hates the shedding of innocent blood. That's the thing that God said is unforgivable um, about Manasseh. He's like... Manasseh filled Jerusalem from one end to the other with innocent blood, and the Lord could not pardon that. And like Manasseh goes into judgment as a result. It's terrifying to me. If we were spending half the money to abort Arab kids, as we're spending to blow them up with missiles and bombs, they'd be they'd be uh, they'd be calling for cuts in Congress tomorrow. <laughs> Isn't that true? So like I don't I don't get it. It feels it feels yeah it feels hypocritical. It to me. feels dirty. It feels dirty. I I think that. And like I said, my views have been evolving on this, and I haven't come to a conclusion. Like, like you said, I don't know the right answer here. But I think one of the things that has helped me to step back a little bit and look at it with not quite the zealous fervor that I used to have is getting exposed to some other, honestly, some other eschatology. Like going through, mm-hmm. listening to R.C. Sproul explain his side of the coin, you know, and what he believes about mm-hmm. it. And then, you know, just hearing, there was even a guy, Mike Winger, who still believes, you know, pretty much the same way that I was raised as far as, what is it? What are they, pre-millennial and uh, mm-hmm, all that. Yeah. But he also tried his best to be fair to the other side and really made me think that, hey, maybe we ain't got this thing figured out and maybe I shouldn't just blindly um, support something uh, yeah. without uh, giving it actually a, a little bit of a due process there and looking it over. Yeah. And at the end of the day, and this is this is what I come down to. And um, let's let's use a more distant example. You know, the the atomic bomb in Hiroshima, and Nagasaki. If you're familiar at all with World War II history, you would talk about a nation, collective nation, that did absolutely terrible things. What Japan did was so terrible. Some of there were there were actually Nazis in China that witnessed some of the Japanese atrocities. That were like, dude, you guys, dial it back. Japan has yet to apologize for the rape of Nanking. Um, 
absolutely horrendous. Like they're literally doing things like having beheading contests. They're lining up civilians and two officers seeing how many heads they can chop off in 30 seconds or whatever. Mm. Like just completely unspeakable brutalities. And so if you're like, boy, anybody that did the atomic bomb have dropped on them, it's Japan. You know, and it's hard not to agree with that. Except that the soldiers that were chopping off uh, people's heads and bayoneting little babies weren't in Nagasaki the day the bomb was dropped. Yes. It was just people that looked like them. Yep. And and if you go and look, I remember reading up on it when the anniversary came around, and I got kind of curious because, you know, it's something you hear about growing up, but you don't know a lot of the details. And reading about it and coming across this picture of this um, this little boy that's like he's a little boy from the waist up and he's a charred stump from the waist down mm. and he's was about the age that my son is at that time I'm like that little boy didn't hurt anybody that little boy didn't kill anybody he just looked like the people who did and somehow that's supposed to make me feel better about him and his family being like, like the fact that the japanese brutalized people in china how does killing that little kid and his family do anything to diminish what happened in China? It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. None of this does. And we have this idea of the scoreboard. They killed 3,000 of us. We're going to kill 10,000 of them. Mm-hmm. Yay. Like, who won? Now we just have more hurting people. There's just more grief and there's more death. And that's why the view that, the view, and, and this is a whole other rabbit trail, but one of the best views that I have of Christ's atonement is that Jesus is this um that Jesus is like this giant garbage collector. He's like this sponge. He like he climbs up on the cross and he says for the last thousands of years of human history other people hate you and so you do bad things to me so I do bad things to you so then you do bad things back to me and then your children do bad things to my kids and on and on and on it goes. But now I'm going to climb up on this cross and you're going to do every bad thing you can possibly imagine to me. And I'm going to absorb all that and I'm not going to do any of that back to you. And that's the only way you can have peace is for somebody to say, you could do whatever you want to me. I'm not going to do it back to you. It stops here. The violence stops with me. And if that means you kill me, that means you kill my family, means you kill us all. That's fine. I'd rather. I'd rather die than shed blood. And that's the path to peace. And the thing is, people are like, well, Hamas is brutal. Hamas is bad and all this stuff. And we we have this idea. We like to monstrosify people. And Hamas is bad. And Hamas is evil. And there's a lot of evil that goes into that. But two of the most evil people around were the guys that shot up Columbine. They walked into school and they blasted all these people. And they, sh- they shot a lot of people. They didn't shoot everybody in the school. They had enough ammunition to do it. But after a while, shooting defenseless people in the face, even when you're an evil person, starts wearing on you. Yes. They walked out of the library and they decide, okay, this is it. And they stopped. Like they stopped on their own. And and my point is there's something in the way that people are created. It's just not fun to beat up on somebody that's that's just like, hey, if this is what you want to do, that's what you want to do. Like it doesn't, it doesn't do for you what you hope that it's going to do. Like God created the world that this path, this is the path to peace. And I don't relish the idea that that would mean that, you know, people should die defenseless. 
people should die rather than choose to to fight back or people should die rather than choose to take revenge or, or, or stop this. But there's, there's, there's the path refusing to retaliate, refusing to hate back, refusing. That's that to me, that's the view of the atonement that Jesus did that Jesus is the example. And then he says, now take up your cross. And you go into the world and absorb the hatred and the cruelty and the meanness and the ugliness and absorb it into yourself. Like he says in Romans 12, don't be overcome with evil, overcome evil with good. It's good. Yes. And that's, to me, that's, that's the only path forward. And we can talk about all these other, all this other, these other ideas, but until Christian people can grasp this idea that Jesus came to stop the cycles of violence. Jesus came not just to save us from some future hell. Jesus came to save us from the hell we're living in right now. Whether it's an abusive hell in your church or your home, whether it's geopolitical hells that people are unleashing on each other. But we don't do that by doing more of the same. The path to peace is loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your enemies, doing good to those that hate you, pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you. Not because it works. I mean, it does work, but it, I mean, it didn't work really well for Jesus. If Jesus like praying for him on the cross, Father, forgive me for what you do. And they're like, oh, well, we should definitely get him off the cross. Right. They stabbed him to death. Yes. You know, so it didn't work. But look at Stephen. They're stoning him to death. And he says, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. You know, it didn't work for Stephen either. They stoned him to death. But those words, that prayer fell on a young man in that crowd by the name of Paul. Can you imagine him going home and thinking about that? Oh, yeah. Like, they're like, they're like killing this guy with rocks. And he's like, Lord, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. Don't lay this sin to their charge. Who does that? And, and, and Paul's eaten up with guilt his whole life for his role in this. Like that's, that's the path forward. Well, David, I uh, I don't want to keep you all night, but I will say you've uh, I should expect this from you now, but you you you've definitely got away with with words. You and um, uh, Tracy Bowen. We all, I I wish I could form sentences half as well as y'all could, but um, you, you you say some very good things. A lot of things for me to chew on as well, and I, I think other people uh, will do the same. Let's not make it two years before we do this again. Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been super good to be uh, connecting again. Um, hopefully, yeah, hopefully you find this helpful. And if you have a chance sometime, you want to come to Boston, uh, we'll put you up in our in our guest housing. Um, we have uh, we have guest guest space that's available in our dorms uh, for visitors that come in. Um, if, I, if I know ahead of time, I can get it reserved for you. And um, it's right beautiful area downtown Boston. Now's a great time of year, actually. It's a fall foliage and everything. Absolutely amazing. So, yeah, I would love to have you. Um, if there's a listener that's interested in Sattler or just interested in coming to visit Boston sometime, I love nothing better than to show you around. Boston's my adopted home. So um, come see us sometime. Absolutely. And, and again, that's sattler.edu. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. All right. Sattler. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.